0: Do you ever feel like you have extraordinary responses to seemingly ordinary sensory experiences? For instance, does hearing a sound prompt you to see a color? Or maybe when you smell something, do you see something that other people don't see? You may experience a condition called synesthesia.
1: Clearly there is something about synesthetes that results in them having a conscious experience that the rest of us don't have, but there's growing evidence that suggests that it builds on mechanisms that we all do have.
0: On this episode of the American Scientist podcast, an interview with researcher Anina Rich, who investigates synesthesia to learn about how the brain integrates information. I'm Corey S. Powell. In cognitive neuroscience, researchers typically study each of the senses separately. It makes it more manageable to study, say, just sight alone without trying to study sound at the same time. But that's not how we experience the world at all. In real life, we're seeing and hearing things at the same time, all the time. We're always smelling and tasting something, too, whether we're aware of it or not. You get the idea. Our conscious experience of our senses is combined, not separate. People who have synesthesia combine their senses in a slightly different way. For example, they may have visual experiences in response to hearing a sound, or they may smell things and then see a color that's invisible to everyone else. Studying how these people process information, that is, how synesthetes process information, offers a unique insight in how we all put information together across our senses. For decades now, Anina Rich has been studying how people who have synesthesia process sensory information. She heads the Perception in Action Research Centre at Macquarie University in Australia and the Synesthesia at Macquarie Research Group. I spoke with her via the internet. Here's our interview, which I started by asking her how she defines synesthesia.
1: And it's a really important question as well to start with, because how people define synesthesia uh, actually varies across across research groups a little bit, across the world, uh, and we need to, first of all, specify what it is that we're talking about. I typically define synesthesia as an extraordinary response or experience to a very ordinary stimulus. So, ordinarily, for most of us, a sound is an auditory event, and we we process that sound and we assign it meaning, and we can localize it, and all sorts of things like that. It may activate certain concepts in the in the in the brain in terms of what it might mean. That that's the sound of my dog playing with his bone, and so on but it's an auditory event. For a synesthete, they have that auditory event, just the same, but they have an extraordinary experience associated with it. So auditory visual synesthetes have that sound, would have all of those things plus a visual component. And so for auditory visual synesthetes, the sound of my dog playing with his bone may well evoke a particular visual pattern or a colour one of the studies that we did showed that it's not just a colour in auditory visual synesthesia it also tends to have a form and a particular location in space for graphene colour synesthetes for whom uh, letters numbers words evoke a colour experience again it's an Ordinary stimulus, a letter, and we all process it to a certain degree, and then there's an extraordinary experience that is associated with it, meaning not happening for most people. Mm -hmm. So the the term synesthesia has been used as kind of an umbrella term to mean it basically encompasses a whole host of phenomena in which there is this extraordinary but usually consistent response to an ordinary stimulus. Um,
0: You mentioned um, synesthesia as you know as is an added experience is it ever subtractive i mean does the synesthetic experience ever take away one of the the normal sensory responses or or, or that you know there's a, there's an impairment uh, as kind of like attention the brain's attention is shifted somewhere else
1: Attention may be, but there's no evidence that I'm aware of that synesthesia um, prevents or interferes with the basic uh, sensory process. So, for example, within vision, uh, some of the early experiments people were doing was uh, looking at the logical test of well, if you're seeing a colour and it looks like it's part of that stimulus, then can we see colour mixing? Can we see simultaneous uh color contrast effects and the answer is no Mm -hmm. you can't so the representation of color in synesthesia seems to be at a higher level and my my working hypothesis which may well be wrong but our current working hypothesis based on the data is that it's more at a conceptual level and this is something that in the pop culture of synesthesia didn't like that that message probably doesn't come through so much. So there was a a perception that synesthesia must be due to very low-level, hardwired connections between, you know, say audition and vision, or vision, you know, like processing the word form area and the colour area. You've got this hardwired, very low-level early connection. But really, the body of evidence suggests that it's at a far higher level than that. And so If there was anything where synesthesia really directly interfered with sensory input, I'd be very surprised. Now, that's not to say that you can't get effects where you can see the effect of synesthesia on something else. It's just that these effects tend to be at a higher level. And by that I mean, for example, the synesthetic congruency effect that we've used uh, as an index of synesthesia. So if you set up a situation where you have a letter that's in colour and the task is simply to name the colour that's on the computer screen as quickly as possible, right? So everybody can do this. A blue A, you say blue. For synesthetes, a blue A might be incongruent with their synesthetic colour elicited by the A, right? So for about 40%, more than you'd expect by chance, 40% of synesthetes see A as some shade of red. So mm-hmm. yeah, let's use that as an example. Okay. Uh, a red A is congruent with their synesthesia. There's no conflict, Right. Uh, but a blue A, they're trying to say blue, but the, the A is giving them a red, and what you see is that they're slower in that situation than, than controls for whom it makes no difference. So this is known as early early on we use the term synesthetic Stroop effect because it's the, the logic is based on the classic Stroop effect.
0: I, I know that experiment is as, as you know, it's just sort of like a like a brain game things that uh, that 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 are yeah. in a lot of books.
1: So the logic of the, the classic Stroop is that um, the word the word colour name interferes with your colour naming right. in literate adults because word reading is so, so involuntary and automatic if you're literate. And so colour naming is more effortful, it's a slower process, and so the typical explanation is that um, it interferes with your colour naming process. Um, so we use the same logic. You know, some people would say there are still some people with these low-level effects, and those are the single cases that you see, but certainly for the majority of synesthetes and, I, you know, I, I think we're still lacking really good data that suggests that there are people for whom it's, it's a really low-level thing. Um, there is some dimensionality in terms of intensity and automaticity and so on, um, but it seems to be a useful way of looking at more how we hold conceptual knowledge about objects. So, for example, if you think about what you know about a banana, I could show you a grayscale image of a banana, but colour would still be a really strong part of that concept. Right. And it turns out if I show you a grayscale picture of a banana, you automatically activate the concept of yellow. And it's similar enough to what happens when I show you the real colour for me to be able to decode it from your neural
0: signalling. Uh, How do you sort of define that boundary between these things that are almost like, like what I would call almost like near universal sort of quasi-synesthesia experiences and the things that you study that you would consider true synesthesia?
1: My take is that actually synesthesia falls on the end of a a continuum. So, you know, there are, again, there are theories of synesthesia that are like categorical, which say they're synesthetes and they're clearly something is very different in their brains compared to non-synesthetes. And then there's those of us who think that it's on a continuum. So I would say people who have colours for days of the week and nothing else, you know, I was slightly here on the continuum, maybe at the other end, I think aphantasia might be at the other end, which is people who have no mental imagery whatsoever. Right. right? Um, but then, and then you have some of those uh, sort of societal things that might say, for example, if you ask people to associate colours with letters of the alphabet, as we did in that cognition study, uh, 60% of controls say that A is red. Not that it is, but that it's associated with red. If you make me get, if we, if you make me choose, right. so actually many of the things that synesthetes experience, the colours they experience for letters, are also seen in non synesthetes just asked to just associate to this nonsensical task. So that makes sense if you agree that there must be learning somewhere, right? So my feeling is is that it's not so easy to say this person is a, a sinister, and this person isn't. There's clearly a difference between saying A could be red and A is this highly specific dark maroon with a little bit of black around the edge. So part of it, I think, is the specificity of the experiences. In the field, people use consistency, and I do too, because when we're studying someone, so start, you know, when we're recruiting subjects, if your synesthesia isn't consistent, it's very hard to work out how you could study it. Right. Having said that, I think we might. I mean, there's there's probably a bias in what we're studying now because who, I don't have any way of saying if somebody says to me, "Look, I do have colour experiences for letters, but they change." I have no way of saying, "Oh, you're not a synesthete," or <laughs> you know, like yeah, I, I don't think consistency is a gold standard for defining if you're a synesthete or not, right. right? But unfortunately, scientifically, it kind of has become that because it's a way of distinguishing people that I can study and people I can't.
0: So then based on what you've studied and what you've been able to, to do through your years of research, what is different about the synesthetic brain? What are the questions you're trying to answer there?
1: So the first thing I would say is what's not different. <laughs> There's no differences at a broad macro level um there's no convincing evidence that there's really really marked differences between the brains of synesthetes and non-synesthetes structurally there is one one or two studies that hint that maybe they have stronger connectivity in different areas but those have also been challenged on methodological grounds so there's like a a difficult thing there Um, so my general take on it is that synesthetes don't have different brains; but they might be using them slightly differently, mm-hmm. and that can result in subtle, subtle differences. Right? I mean, neurons that fire together wire together. It's a sort of basic Hebbian learning. So if you have two things that that uh, respond at the same time enough, then you will get a stronger connection than two things that typically don't fire together. So in synesthesia, um, it it makes sense that there might be some connections that are stronger in synesthetes than in non-synesthetes. My take is that they probably don't have vastly different connections to the rest of us. Perhaps those connections are stronger or there's some aspect of it that raises their firing above threshold. Clearly there is something about synesthetes that Mm -hmm. results in them having a, a conscious experience that the rest of us don't have, but there's growing evidence that suggests that it builds on mechanisms that we all do have. Right? So if you take auditory visual synesthesia, for example, we all are able to reliably and systematically map pitch to brightness, right? If I take if I take a, bright, a light that you can change from bright to, to dim and I give you the pitch of a sound, invariably people have a bright light with a high-pitched sound and a dull light with a low-pitched sound, right. right? Synesthetes' experience is built on that in the sense that low-pitched tones... Are dark colours. They tend to be low in space and they tend to be quite big relative to high-pitched tones, which evoke small, bright, high up in space experiences. So these implicit mappings that, that we have, even though we don't, you know, they're implicit, we don't know about them, but they will influence our behavior in certain situations, seem to be the basis for what synesthetes end up with. And so my, my hypothesis is that that's that's the sort of system in the brain is that maybe they don't have additional connect connections that we don't have, rather they maybe have stronger connections in that in that same framework, or that their activity in those in those networks is is higher.
0: You reminded me of an earlier comment that that you know all these things are sort of defined in terms of dualities, you know, uh, you know, a sound and vision or, you know, some of the more exotic ones of, you know, olfactory connections. Are there multi-sensory types of synesthesia in which, you know, like red is five, but it's also, you know, you know, a loud sound, but it's also a smelly odor. I mean, are there are there sort of global synesthetic experiences like that?
1: There are, it's much rarer. So, Alexander Luria's S. Chavresky, the, the neminist, would be a classic example of that. So he had multiple synesthesia to the point where everything had a smell, a taste, a feel. You know, every sense was involved in everything. And it's, it's suggested that that might be why he had such a phenomenal me- memory. Um, and Luria's book's a great read on that. Um, so yeah, it does happen.
0: So could that be telling you something about the the, sort of like the, the the hierarchy of of processing in the brain? Is that, is that that something you're looking into?
1: Yeah. So basically if you think about a a concept where maybe synesthetes, synesthetes are hyper associators, right? We're all, we're all designed, born, evolved to associate information. Maybe for synesthetes, they have this, extra associations, so that they are associating things that most of us wouldn't, the colour then becomes an intrinsic part of that concept, right? Now, if that's the case, then we don't know why yet language might be thing like perhaps one of the most prevalent, but it would make sense if you think about what we're doing with language. Language is all about making associations. Mm-hmm. That word means that thing or that emotion, or that abstract concept, whatever level, right? And so for synesthetes, language might be, it, it encompasses, it generalizes to include this visual experience, for example. Most of the time it is color, and we don't know why yet. It might be that color is one of those things that you can only perceive in vision in one modality, and so it's available mm-hmm. to be tacked onto to other things. Um, and then when you get to sounds and smells, if you are a hyper-associator or, you know, someone whose brain is really keen to make additional associations, then it builds to sounds and smells and touch and whatever else. Some some types of synesthesia seem to be more separate and we just don't have enough data yet. So in my lab we've just started uh, studying mirror-touch synesthesia Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and these synesthetes don't necessarily seem to have the other forms, but it's too early for me to say.
0: So are, are those the rarest forms that you see, the, like t- tactile and olfactory? Are those, are those the rarest synesthesias?
1: Olfactory, yes. Tactile, the jury's still out on that one because there are experiences that may or may not be synesthesia that are very prevalent. So vicarious pain and vicarious touch are terms that are bandied around that apparently lots of people have. Mm-hmm. Now, if I see someone in pain and I feel that pain, that sounds awfully like synesthesia to me or what people define their attached synesthesia as. Right. So we don't know yet.
0: Since you have so many people who, you know, who come through your lab with synesthetic experiences. Do people consider it a burden, a curiosity, a thing they enjoy? Do you see like a whole range of how people react to it?
1: So I've probably corresponded with well over a thousand synesthetes. So of those, there is a handful who can describe really specific situations where it's very debilitating for them. Mm-hmm. Most people, it's it's not even um, it's not even something that they think particularly is particularly unique. It's just part of. It's like me saying to you, "Wow, what do you think about being able to see color? That's amazing, <laughs> right? How can you see color? Oh, you don't think about it as being, you know, uh, a particular thing." And so, you know, you sort of get two stories from people when they find out about synesthesia. One is um, they always they thought everybody else did it, and so they're astonished to find out, and they're like how do you see the world? What does A look like? Mm-hmm. I'm like, mm, kind of like three sticks if I try and imagine it. And they're like, you have to try. Like, this is weird. Um, the other is that they found out early on that they were unusual and then thought that they were kind of the only ones. Um, and that's, that's happening, I feel like, less and less with the internet, with information on it, lots of information saying synesthesia is not a disorder, which is something I actually always like to have sneak into my interviews. Right. So please, <laughs> that, that bit. <laughs> So, yeah, so there's, uh, for most people, it's not, it's not a, a problem. Many people find ways to use it, um, you know, so musicians, for example, I remember one of, one of my synesthetes saying, well, when I'm improvising, I know what the colours should be. So it's like, okay, it's, it's, it's in F, so I just play yellow. Um, a woman who said, well, I don't need to label any of my files, I just use the right colours for the folders. Mm-hmm so it's great for her, not very good for anyone else who wants to fund her files, right? Um, this sort of thing. So, in a minor way. But for most people, it, you know, I call it an unusual gift, if anything, but a lot of people are just like, it's just like how I do, like, I don't get what's different about it.
0: That was Anina Rich, who heads the Perception and Action Research Centre at Macquarie University in Australia and the Synesthesia at Macquarie Research Group. In the July-August 2020 issue of American Scientist magazine, a special issue about our creative brains, you can read a different excerpt of our interview. It's in the article titled First Person, Anina Rich. You'll also find it online at americanscientist.org. You've been listening to a podcast from American Scientist magazine, published by Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Honor Society. This podcast was produced by Robert Frederick. I'm Corey S. Powell. Thank you for joining us.